following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. Good morning again. It's really good to see you all today. Uh, I'm Derek McCollum. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I would love to. That was Mike Abercorn, who was leading us in our confession. Uh, and we are continuing our series through the book of Nehemiah this morning. We're in chapter 4. So far in Nehemiah, we've seen this. We've seen things have been in trouble, and uh, God has worked through Nehemiah, sent Nehemiah, even after his wonderful prayerful and courageous approach to the king to send Nehemiah back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. And it sounds like, wow, fantastic success. Maybe we can just end right here. But of course, that's never the end of a story, is it? There's always some sort of opposition. We've seen it come up a little bit in chapter 2. We're going to see it big here in chapter 4. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up to Nehemiah chapter 4 or you can follow along on the screen. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. That's long, so I'm going to get a little water first. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he said, yes, what they're building. If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down the stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed... (coughs) They were very angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Even in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who had lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and I rose, excuse me. And said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, 
we all return to the wall, each to his own work. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this portion of Nehemiah. As we learn, Lord, what it looks like to lean into the difficulties of life. And we remember that we can't do this all on our own. Lord, we can't even actually come and understand your word on our own. We need your spirit to be with us. So we ask, Lord, now that by the power of your spirit, you would soften our hearts and open our ears and our eyes, that we might know you more deeply this morning. And in knowing you, we might love you, trust you, serve you in all that we do. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Um, Joy and I just finished uh, last week watching a a series, a television series called A Small Light. It was recommended to us by Betsy Barr. It's a National Geographic, actually, series, but it's uh, it's on, it's about the Anne Frank and her story, right? So a lot of us maybe in school read the diary of Anne Frank. This is a little bit of an interesting twist because it's told through the eyes of a woman named Meep who is the secretary of Otto Frank's company. And she, along with her husband and a few others, hide Jews in the secret room in Otto Frank's office. And for two years, they stay hiding. If you're familiar with the story, if you've read the diary, you know the difficulty of it. That for two years, there's fear of what's going to happen. They're in Amsterdam, and the Nazis have taken over Amsterdam, and they're always hunting and rounding up Jews and sending them off to concentration camps. And so these fearful Jews hide upstairs in this room for two years with this incredible outside uh, opposition hunting them down, literally, searching for them every day. Of course, whenever there's exterior opposition, it oftentimes creates interior opposition too, right? The people who have been cooped up literally have not been outside for two years. They start to fight each other. Uh, Fear and wonder and insecurity starts to reign, and they start hearing and seeing things maybe even that aren't there. And that kind of opposition kind of begins to seep inside too. Now, most of us have have never been hunted by Nazis, thank the Lord. But we all do face opposition in some way. Um, How about this just little piece of opposition? It's called inflation. In uh, year 2000, $100 was $100. That same $100 today is about $178 meaning that you need $178 to buy the same amount of stuff that $100 would have bought you in the year 2000. That also means that a $20,000 car in 2000 is a $35,000 car now. That's a pretty big jump. Maybe you guys are feeling a little bit of that opposition. Uh, Or maybe you, like me, are just in the most expensive time of any person's life. Uh, We pay three rent or mortgage payments, and we don't own any vacation homes, and uh, pay out the nose for car insurance. And it just feels like our finances have gotten together and are attacking us sometimes. Maybe you feel the same way. Of course, I have never experienced having a child walk away from the faith or, or away from relationship in our family, which I know some of you have. 
I've never received a cancer diagnosis, which I know some of you have. I have not lost a parent or a friend or gone through that kind of difficulty recently, which I know some of you have. And a lot of times, sometimes it can feel like life is just opposing us, like there is an attack on us just coming from all sides. Or maybe it feels like that on the inside rather than the outside. Your own fear, your own insecurity, your own despair. I have spoken with more than one person in the last few weeks who has talked about a despair so great that they really didn't want to live anymore. Maybe you felt that, that interior opposition, that feeling that things inside you are simply crumbling and you're not sure what to do with it. So what do we do when we feel the attacks from the outside or when we feel them from the inside? Where do we turn? Well, we actually get a really wonderful example of that here in Nehemiah 4. And I believe that God is telling us through Nehemiah that we have the wonderful privilege as God's people of crying out to the Lord to rescue us in those times. We have the privilege of remembering God's great salvation and his rescue. We have the privilege of remembering who he is even in the midst of difficulty. So let's look at this passage, and we're going to look really at those two things, the exterior opposition and the interior opposition. We'll start with the outside. What do I mean by external opposition? Well, you've probably heard it quite a few times. Listen to verses 1 through 3 again. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said to his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in one day? Will they revive the stones out of these heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And then his friend Tobiah joins in. He says, yes, what they're building, it's like if a fox goes up on the wall, he'll break it down, right? It's so feeble that even this light little fox will break things down. And then if you jump over to verse 7, 7 through 9, he's going at it again. Listen to this. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Sanballat and his friends are opposing the Jews who are rebuilding this wall. And by the way, it's happening not just kind of in one little bit, but the picture that we get here actually is that it's happening from all sides. In that verse 7 where Nehemiah says, Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, right, they're all coming together. Well, listen to this. Uh, uh, Sanballat is Sumerian. That's, that's to the north of Judah. Uh, the Arabs talked about here are probably the folks who live to the south of Judah. The Ammonites are the folks on the east, and the Ashdodites are the folks on the west. So literally, they are surrounded on all sides. The picture that we get here of Nehemiah and his friends who are rebuilding in this, we saw this beautiful rebuilding project in chapter 3. And the picture that we get is even in the midst of that, they are now being surrounded by their enemies. Ever felt like that? 
Like, I don't even know where to turn. If I go this way, it feels like there's this opposition. If I go this way, it feels like there's something else. It's just all around me, and it feels like it's coming 100 miles per hour. But most of it in this passage is coming from this one guy, Sanballat. So what's going on with Sanballat? He's mentioned 10 times, actually, in Nehemiah. He keeps showing up throughout this book. And uh, he is an interesting character. He is the main opposition to Nehemiah in the whole book of Nehemiah. And he, we hear in verse 1, is angry. So why is he so angry? Why is Sanballat so angry? I think it's a few things. First of all, his power is being challenged. Sanballat was actually the governor of Samaria the kingdom just north of Judah. And in a place where Susa, the capital of Persia, remember the Persians are in control, well, Susa's pretty far away. In fact, it would have taken about 55 days if you were clipping it at about 20 miles per day on the back of a camel to get from Jerusalem to Susa. So if you're going to do business between these places and you're going to govern, it takes a while for things to go back and forth. There's no email. There's no telephones. So when there's that much distance, the people who are closer begin to grasp for control. And Sambalat and the Sumerians have some power. They have some power in that region. And when they see the folks rebuilding the city here, their power is challenged. But not only is power challenged, his idolatry is actually challenged as well. Samaria would have been a place with a very mixed religious Milu, right? This mixed up kind of religious stew. Part of it was actually the worship of the one true God. Part of it was borrowed from other cultures. And part of it was all just kind of put together in this big mix of religion. Much like we see actually in our world. A little bit of God, a little bit of self-help, a little bit of nationalism, a little bit of whatever else you want to kind of sprinkle in. And his idolatry is being challenged. They're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding the city where God has said, this is my place and these are my people. And so his idolatry is being pushed on. His power is being challenged. His idolatry is being challenged. And then last of all, his control is being challenged. Nehemiah is actually doing this with a letter from the king that says, hey, I can do this. See that right here? The king said I could. So here's Sanballat kind of in this position where he doesn't really have a say over things. And his control is being challenged. And so what does he do when his power and his idolatry and his control is challenged? He reacts to it. Listen to the way that he reacts. First, there's anger. We learn that in verse 1. He's angry. He hears of what's going on, and it spurs anger in his heart. And then what does that lead to? Secondly, ridicule, verbal abuse, mocking. He's publicly and gathering others, by the way, to his side to hear it, mocking the Jews and what they're doing. I love how he says, you know, that he got all of his brothers and the whole army around him, and like he's saying, you know, ha, 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 look at these fools, what they're doing. Then, of course, that ridicule and verbal abuse turns into actually physical plots of violence. His anger turns to rage, to wrath, and he begins to physically plot violence against the people. Friends, this is the pattern of people who are challenged and do not humble themselves. 
This is the pattern of every white supremacist group you've ever seen. This is the pattern of every school bully. This is the pattern of every abusive spouse. This is the pattern of every narcissistic leader. This is what happens when challenged, anger starts to work its way into your heart. That comes out actually in verbal abuse and jeers and put downs and ends up usually turning into some sort of physical threat or into physical violence. That's usually the way it goes. Now, in a room this size, the sociologists will tell you that there are a good handful of people here who know some sort of Sandbalot in their life. Maybe it was your boss, or your husband, or your father, or your friend. Somebody that manipulated and abused you and did it in a lot of these very same ways. So what do you do when you're faced with someone like that? When you're faced with that kind of external opposition that turns into abuse? Well, here's a really great, very practical example that we get from Nehemiah that's helpful for us. What Nehemiah does, what he urges the people to do is actually in verse 9, pray and take prudent action. Listen to this again. This is what he says, and we prayed to our God and we set a guard as a protection against them. Those things in combination are really good advice for us. We pray and we take prudent action and they can go together, guys, okay? If you are sick, you should pray that the Lord works to heal and you should go to the doctor. One is not exclusive of the other. If you receive a difficult diagnosis, please tell us so that we can pray for you. We would love to cry out to the Lord for you on your behalf and please seek out good treatment. And listen to this, please. If you are in the midst of an abusive relationship, something like this, please pray, turn to the Lord, ask the Lord for his comfort and his care and his guidance. He does promise that he is a refuge for us in our times of trouble. And then please also tell someone, tell me, tell our elders, if there's physical abuse, tell the police. It is okay to take steps of prudent action, even in the midst of crying out to the Lord for prayer, in prayer. All right, that's the external. Let's turn our attention then to the internal opposition, because it's coming not only from all sides on the outside, but it's actually coming from the inside here as well. Look at verse 10, if you've got a Bible there. In Judah, remember that's where they are, these are the folks that live there, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. I mean, they are facing fading strength, aren't they? <laughs> they are tired. They're looking around at this project and it's hard and it is difficult and there is a lot to do and it's starting to get to them. I was talking with my son Anderson the other day, talking about just this dynamic that happens in our brains, right? That, you know, you decide I'm gonna clean my room and you get it nice and clean and all of the dirty clothes are in the dirty clothes hamper 
and all of the clean clothes are folded and they are put in the drawers and everything looks great. But after a couple of days when you've just kind of decided to, to leave a few of your dirty clothes on the floor, there's this switch in your brain that happens, right? Where instead of saying, oh, I could actually pick up their dirty clothes and put them in the dirty clothes hamper, instead you say, well, there's already dirty clothes on the floor, might as well leave some more. Same thing happens in my garage workbench, which I'm literally ashamed to even call a workbench, okay? Because it's just this pile of junk everywhere. Instead of me saying, you know what, after I've taken out the hammer or the screwdriver, I should put it back in its place. I look at this pile of junk and I think, you know what, who cares? Just throw it all in there. It's already a mess. This kind of switch that flips in our brain where we say, well, you know what, things are too difficult. Maybe I shouldn't try. And of course, it happens in much more important places than workbenches and teenage boy room floors. This happens in our relationships. Maybe that relationship with my friend really just isn't worth it anymore, or with my spouse, or with my child. And so it's gotten so difficult, it's gotten so hard, that now I've just kind of given up, right, and I'm not really sure what to do. That's a big piece of what we struggle with, what we face, this internal opposition of weakness, of fading strength, of deciding that, you know what, I'm not sure I can do it anymore, so I'm just going to go ahead and give up. But they're also dealing with fear. Look at verse 12. This is what we read. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions, and they said to us ten times, which is a number in the Bible that means that they said it a lot, they said, you must return to us. What they mean is, it's going to be bad. People are coming, and they are going to kill us. People are coming for us, and it's not safe for us. They're dealing with fear. We, of course, deal with that. And what happens when we're afraid? What happens when anxiety rises in us? Well, actually, scientists will tell you that there's scientific experiments that have been done on our brains that when fear is triggered in our brains, that the fear portion of your brain turns on and everything else turns off. That's basically the way it works. The fear portion of your brain says, okay, I'm taking over now, and there's going to be no logical thinking anymore. We're just shutting everything else down. That happens to us, doesn't it? Is that we stop actually thinking about the truth, and we begin only to focus on the fear. But look, isn't this wonderful, what Nehemiah actually tells them? Look back at the end of this passage. This is what he says in verse 14. And I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, everybody that was gathered there, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He calls them to remember. Remember the, the active engagement of teaching your heart and your brain the truth. That's what the remembering here is. It's the active engagement of reminding your heart and your brain what is true. And that is hard in the face of fear. But it is what we are called to, to be renewed in our minds, Paul says in the book of Romans, to be renewed by the wonderful gospel truth. So how do you go about doing that? How do you go about the process of remembering? Well, here's one small thing we can take, I think. Uh, this week, actually, 
my counselor gave me this wonderful pattern of prayer for how to deal with difficult emotions as they come in. Emotions like fear, emotions like this weakness or fading strength. What do we do with them? Well, here's a pattern for how to approach the Lord in them. And it's three steps. Here's the first one, is that the first step is actually to address the Lord and tell him what's going on. Sometimes that's the hardest piece, isn't it? Lord, here is what I am feeling. Here is what I am dealing with right now. Here are the things that I actually feel. And being honest with the Lord about those things means that we've got to be honest with ourselves about them. So sometimes that's the biggest first step. The second step, though, is really wonderful. It's to spend time asking a question and then searching the scriptures for the answer to that question. And here's the question. Is Jesus, how do you understand this feeling? See, where I'm first, I'm actually being honest about to the Lord. Here's how I'm feeling. Then I'm asking, asking Jesus, how do you understand this feeling? And we get some beautiful reminders, actually, in the book of Hebrews about Jesus and the way that he understands us. Hebrews 4 tells us that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. Is that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. And so we have a high priest who can sympathize. There is one Greek dictionary that takes that word sympathize. This is the way that it translates it. To feel in one's heart just like someone else feels. To feel in one's heart just like someone else feels. So what the book of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus actually is able to feel in his own heart the way that we feel. We can come to him and say, Lord, I am feeling afraid. Jesus, how have you understood that? Jesus has felt afraid. Jesus has been persecuted. Jesus has literally, uh, you know, prayed for him not to have to go through something so bad that the image there was of sweating drops of blood. That's a lot of anxiety. Jesus has felt those things. So we can trust him. We can know that he understands us. And then the third and final piece to that is to receive the Lord's comfort. We read in 2 Corinthians 1 that it's the God of all comfort who has compassion on us, that he comforts us even in the midst of our afflictions. That is the way that we can remember in prayer who God is by giving our feelings to him, understanding that he understands us and receiving his comfort. So this is a pattern that we see in Nehemiah, opposition from the outside, opposition from the inside. It's something obviously that we go through individually as well. But you know, this is actually something as well that is the story of the church. This is actually part of the story of God's church and his mission in the world. If you can remember back to the book of Acts, let me give you a quick overview of the book of Acts. The book of Acts can be described as the Holy Spirit working through the apostles to overcome opposition from the outside and from the inside. Okay? We open up Acts, and in chapter 2, pretty quickly, we see thousands of people are being converted. There's this incredible flame, like a wildfire, that's just passing through Jerusalem uh, of, of gospel-centered proclamation and hearts being changed and people being saved. But of course, there's opposition, isn't there? It comes from the outside. Stephen preaches wonderful, great gospel message. 
And for that wonderful sermon, he gets stoned. And we see that the person actually standing over him is this man named Saul, who's been doing that a lot, who's been persecuting Christians. We see it from the religious establishment. We see it from the Roman establishment, from the government, from the church, all of that coming, right? We see lots of external persecution. We see Peter and John in prison very early on in Acts. And we see Saul in prison, or Paul, in prison later on in Acts. There's always opposition coming from the outside. How about the inside? That's just as bad. How about we just get this guy who's been killing Christians and invite him to church, and we'll see how that goes. Talk about some fear. How's that going to be? Or how about we send Peter out and talk about whether or not the gospel should go to the Gentiles, and Peter doesn't know what to do with it. How about that internal conflict? Or how about we send missionaries out who don't end up getting along with each other and they have to split up? Internal conflict. If you read through the epistles, which are, you know, the letters written by the apostles to all of these young churches during that time, they're always dealing with internal conflict. Here's what's going on. You're really, you're really messing up kind of the gospel message. Or you're hearing the gospel message, but something totally different is actually happening in your life and in the church. Or this division of, you're following Apollos, you're following Paul, and there's division in the church, or there's division between Gentile and Jew, or there's division between slave and free, or there's division between man and woman, and there's divisions all over, right? But what happens in the book of Acts and in the New Testament? Every time one of those little flames is stamped out, another flame crops up. Every time that external opposition comes, there's actually a flourishing of the gospel somewhere. Every time there's that internal division, the Holy Spirit actually works and something beautiful happens. Such that we get to the book of Acts at the very end of the book of Acts and the words that we hear are that even though Paul is in chains, the gospel is actually going forth unhindered. It's spreading across the world. It's spreading across that continent and then by the way, it's spreading across the entire world so that you and I, 2,000 years later and a continent away, are sitting here today talking about Jesus. That flame was not put out. That's the story of the church. And it's the story of the church because it's the story of our Savior. In fact, those bold apostles in Acts, and I would say even Nehemiah back in the Old Testament, and you and I here today, the reason that we can walk into difficulty whether that's internal or external difficulty, is because that is exactly what Jesus has done. Jesus was born, and the political ruler of the day wanted to kill him. Jesus started preaching peace and healing people and caring for them. And the religious rulers of the day wanted to kill him. Jesus actually said that there was a beautiful kingdom coming, the kingdom of God that would be a peaceful and amazing kingdom, that there would one day be a time where nobody would have to mourn or cry, that all things would be made right, and the Roman establishment decided that they would put him on trial, falsely accuse him, and then kill him. Jesus walked into all of that external opposition willingly. How about internal? His family thought he was crazy. His own disciples, his, one of his closest ones, after he was arrested, said, not only once, but three times, I don't even know that guy. And then one of his disciples betrayed him for money. 
none of them showed up for his crucifixion. That's internal division, opposition. And Jesus walked willingly into it, willingly into the greatest opposition the world has ever known, to go and defeat sin and death. And he did it for you and I on our behalf so that we might be able, knowing that we have been saved from that great opposition, that we might be able actually to cling to the Lord in the midst of the difficulties in our lives. So what do you do when you, when you see difficult things, when you, when you feel difficult things, when you walk through difficult things? <laughs> you remember your Lord Jesus Christ who has walked through the most difficult thing the world has ever known, and he has done it for you. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we're grateful. We're grateful this morning that you, you walked through pain and suffering and opposition, that you did not run from it, that you did not hide, that you did not cower, and that you were victorious. So, Lord, um, by faith in your work accomplished for us, Make us those who cling to you in the midst of the difficulties in our lives. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.